You're listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. God is good and all the time. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 and verse 16. Then we're also going to be looking in Mark chapter 4, but you can follow that on the screen. This is page 835 in your pew Bible. Those watching online, we're so honored and humbled that you would be with us this morning. And I, I want you to understand, as, when you read the Old Testament, you'll, you'll read passages of Scripture uh, where in the beginning it says the burden of the Lord, the burden of the Lord. And this morning I feel that burden. I feel that God has a word for all of us this morning. So I ask that you would, just these next 30, 40 minutes, that you would just be in tune with what the Holy Spirit has to say through the Word of God. Let's stand and read God's Word in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16. The Holy Spirit says to us today through Matthew, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now Mark chapter 4, verse 30. And Jesus said, with what shall we compare the kingdom of God? Or what what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed which was sown in the ground as the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. You may be seated. How many of you are bored? You say, well, that's kind of a weird question. I've only been here for 30 minutes. (laughs) How many of you are bored in life? It's amazing that I think that there's two B's that a lot of people in our American culture struggle with. One is boredom and the other one is busyness. 63% of Americans in a recent survey said that they, on occasion, at least once or twice a week, are bored. Those of you who have children, you probably know that there are moments in which they come to you and they're bored. Maybe during your, uh, your evenings or weekends when you have some free time, you become bored. And the interesting thing is that we are probably the most entertained generation in history. There is more to do, more to watch, more to read about, and more information to digest than any other time in history. And yet all those things are never enough. They don't fill our hearts the way we think that they should. And the reason why is because there is a desire within all of us to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And the reason why we want to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves is because God has created within us eternity. It has been stamped upon our hearts. That's why we flock to movies. That's why we binge watch on Netflix. That's the reason why we are captivated by sports and, and victories is because we want to be a part of something bigger. Our hearts are drawn to be a part of something bigger than ourselves because we know, everyone in this room, you know that you were created for more than just living, dying, and paying taxes. We were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. 
we were created by God to multiply. When, when God created Adam and Eve, if you read in Genesis chapter 1, when he created them, he gave them a command. This is pre-sin. He said to be fruitful and to multiply. That was to spread his supremacy, his rule and his reign on earth for his glory and our good. And the means by which Adam and Eve were to do that was through physical reproduction. They were to have babies. Now, we don't know how many children Adam and Eve had. We, we don't know, but it, it probably was a lot in those 900 plus years that they lived here. But yet what we do know is that when Genesis 3 happened, sin entered into that world. And that good command that God gave them was distor distorted and perverted. And sin changed everything in, in the whole of human history so that now all of humanity is consumed with living for our glory and for our good rather than God's glory and his good. And yet, just as sin entered into the world by one man, salvation entered into the world through a better man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ ascended to the Father, he gave a command. And this is the command that we are reading this morning. And this command is the same command that God gave essentially to Adam and Eve. And that was not physical reproduction, but spiritual reproduction. That is multiplication. Jesus said to his disciples that he was going to build his church, and yet how he was going to build his church was through 12 ordinary people, through the men that, he, that had given their lives to follow him for three years, these men that had left everything just to follow him. And they, in their minds, when they saw their Savior die on the cross, when they saw Jesus, they thought that everything was over, their hopes and dreams that they had pinned. And this one man seemed to just fade away. And for three days, could you imagine the three days after the crucifixion of Christ, the confusion that ensued in that moment, that they had said in their minds, this is the Messiah, this was the Savior of the world, and now he is dead. But yet, three days later, Jesus Christ triumphantly rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, nothing was impossible for God. And as he's ascending to heaven, he gives the command that we just read a moment ago. He gives his disciples a mission to accomplish. The same mission he gave to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, to spread his glory around the earth until he returns. So this morning I want us to look at three things about this mission. The first thing I want you to get at is the mission defined. What is the mission that Jesus gives to the disciples? What is the mission that Jesus gives to our church? Our vision is to be a part of his commission, a part of his vision. So we have to understand what the mission is. Now, one thing as you read the Bible, you will not see the word mission in the Bible. It actually comes from a Latin word that corresponds to a Greek verb, apostoline. And apostoline means sent or to be sent. This word apostoline is found 137 times. So to be on mission is to be sent. And, and a, a mission has at least three components. There is a sender. There's a person or persons being sent by the sender. And then there are those to whom he is sent, she is sent, or the assignment. So there are three components to every mission. One, a sender. Two, the sent. And three, those to whom they are sent to. Now being on a mission means... That someone is sent by someone to do something specific. So to be on mission means that you have been sent by someone to do something specific. So what is the mission of your life? What is the mission of this church? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because there's a lot of confusion in this day. 
there's a lot of confusion when it comes to the church world on what the mission is. Some would think that the mission would be building a bigger building. Some would think having bigger budgets. Some think that it was just having great family programs in the church. But I want you to understand that the mission of our church is not those things or just those things. It's not just doing good deeds. It's not just seeking social justice. Some people think that the, the mission of the church is helping the helpless, helping the homeless, and helping the hurting with a hand up or a hand out. But I want you to hear me this morning that the mission that God has for us is far more important, far more impactful, and far <laughs> eternal. It's eternal. That's what it is. Now, again, being on mission means that you have a specific job to do. And so here Jesus gives us this specific job to do, and that's found in verses 19 and 20, where Jesus says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The mission here of the church is the main word, make disciples. All these other verbs, go, baptize, and teach, are what you would learn in English classes being participles. That is, these things, go, baptize, teach, fall underneath and actually show how we as the church make disciples. How we as believers are to make disciples. All believers are to make disciples under the authority of Jesus by going, by baptizing, and by teaching people to follow Jesus. So here, Jesus says, you are to reproduce. That's his command. That's his last words to the church. The last words that he gives to us before he ascends to the Father is to go and reproduce yourselves. Go and multiply. The sad reality of it is, is that most Christians live their entire lives and haven't shared Jesus with anyone. Most Christians, when they die and they stand before God and God says, what did you do with the time that I gave you? Who did you disciple? Who did you share the gospel with? Who will you have with you? You know, most people, even in our churches, Southern Baptist churches, outside of their immediate family, have not led to anyone outside of their immediate family to Christ, not pointed them to Jesus. And listen, this is the command that God has given us. So the question is, so what is a disciple? Because if I'm supposed to be doing this, so what is a disciple? Well, a disciple is the very basic as a student, a follower, a learner. A disciple is someone who emulates or becomes like their teacher. A disciple is a follower who seeks to be like the one they're following. So if you apply this to Jesus, a disciple is someone who learns from Jesus to live like Jesus. So a disciple of Jesus is a worshiper. They worship Jesus. They're a servant. They serve Jesus, and they're a witness for and a witness of Jesus. So this is the command, make disciples. This is the mission. This is what we're called to do. Not the professionals. Everyone in this room is called to do this. Every believer is to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. Every one of us. Not just me, not just the deacons, not just the small group leaders. If you're saved by Jesus Christ, you are called to this mission. 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others also. Paul taught Timothy, Timothy was to teach faithful men, and those faithful men were to teach other faithful men. So, 
Our church is called to multiply. That is why our vision statement is, is to be a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multiplying church that makes disciples and raises up the next generation of church planters, missionaries, disciple makers, and church leaders to reach Sanford and the surrounding communities and the nations for Jesus Christ. That is why we exist. And if we don't make disciples, then... We shouldn't exist. See, if we don't make disciples, then the problem is we're not being successful at the one thing we're called to do. You know, one of the worst kinds of failures is to be successful at the wrong thing. Or to be successful at the thing that doesn't ultimately matter. So therefore, everything that we do as a church should flow from that mission to make disciples. Without that mission, we are wasting our time, wasting our money, and wasting our resources. So from the preschool ministry, to the kids ministry, to the uh, student ministry, to our college ministry, to our adult ministry, to our multi-generational senior adult ministry, everything, all of those ministries should flow from the mission of making disciples. And if those ministries don't make disciples, we have to reevaluate those ministries. Because that is the mission. And I will tell you that if we can simplify as a church what the mission is, it will make everything else make sense. Bob Roberts said that the church does not send missionaries. It is the missionary. We have been called uniquely to be in Sanford. You, in your life, have been uniquely called to live in Central Florida. Whether you live in, in, in Sanford or Lake Mary or DeBerry or even those crazy people in Chuliota. Wherever God has called you, you have been called to be a missionary. You are sent by Jesus. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. So that's the mission. Number two, the mission not only defined, but I want you to see the mission deployed. How can we accomplish this? How can we make disciples who make disciples? Jesus gives us the simple formula. The first way to do that is to go. To go. Now, in the Greek, the, the word literally means as you are going. So in Jesus' mind, it's not if you are going, but as you are going. The, the implication is, is that believers would be going. They would be living their lives. So some of you this morning in hearing this message, I don't want you to get the mindset that you have to quit your day job. Some of you probably would gladly quit your day job. But I'm not telling you you have to quit your day job, go to seminary, move to another country to be on mission. I'm also not telling you that you have to add something else already to your busy life. Being on mission is just living the life of Christ intentionally before others and pointing them to Him. That's what it is. It's intentionally living your life. So that you can point other people to him. It's as you are going. It's as you go to the grocery store. It's as you go to Walmart. God help you. As you drive on I-4 uh, with other people. <laughs> as you are going to Disney World. As you are going to the Little League game. As you are going to the gym. As you are going to work. Wherever it is. As you're going. You just live intentionally the life of Jesus. And point people to him. We have a, a, a couple of ladies in our church. I'm not going to call them by name, but they 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 serve uh, a minute. They serve in their business, and their business is beauty. But as they're doing their beauty business, they're sharing Jesus, because in the 20, 30 minutes that they have a person in their chair and they're doing the, the beautification of that person, they have a very captive audience. 
Because if that captive audience doesn't like it, they're going to have a mess all over their face. So, listen, as they're going, they have an opportunity. J.D. Greer said this. He says, every Christian is responsible to leverage his or her life for the sake of others. Jesus calls us to live in such a way that our lives mirror his and that through that reflection, the world grabs on and Jesus reels them back to himself. If you are a Christian, you are called. The question is not if we are called, but where and how we are called. You may be called to your school, to your job, to your neighborhood, to your family, to your little league team, to your gym, to the circle of friends, or you may even be called to the nations. You know, this year, my, my wife and I, we decided that we were going to put our children in public school into DeBerry Elementary, and for years we've been homeschooling, but we just really felt that this would be a good year for them to, to go to school. And my son, uh, Aaron, who is 10 years old, is in fifth grade, and, and, and we were talking about what he's going to face and, and the, the differences. Because, you know, when you're homeschooled, it's, it's a different place. It's hard to get kicked out of homeschool. <laughs> And, and when you go to public school, you know, it is what it is. But I told them, you know, you're going to have all these kids and they're, they're not going to necessarily all be Christians and they're not necessarily going to know what you know about God and you have to understand that. And I look at him every Sunday, every, every morning we try to, as a family, gather together and pray before we send them out. And one of the things that I say to, to all of my kids, especially to Aaron, I say, son, that's your mission field. That's your mission field. He's 10 years old, but that's his mission field. Wherever, you're, wherever you are going to tomorrow, that's your mission field. Wherever you go, as soon as you leave here, and I know some of you, you, you speed out of here. I see it. Wherever you're going, that's where you're to go. That's your mission field. One other thing that, that I heard another preacher say, and, and I really thought it was good, and I, I can't remember exactly who said it, but here's what he said. He says, whatever you're good at doing, do it well for the glory of God. And then do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. So I'm again, I'm saying you don't have to quit everything and become full-time vocational ministry to be on mission. Just go. Just go. You are, when you leave this property, you are on mission to fulfill the Great Commission. So go. That's how you make disciples. You go. But number two, you baptize. Now you say, well, am I supposed to go out and baptize people? Well, just, just randomly say, hey, come here. Let's go to the lake and I'll dunk you. <laughs> I'm not saying that. How you make disciples is you go out and you meet people and you intentionally live your life before them. You share the gospel with them. They become believers. They become followers of Christ. And then you help them take their first step, which is their next step after salvation, which is to be baptized. Baptism in America is, is, is unfortunately become not that big of a deal. And that's why some of you in this room maybe have never taken that next step of being publicly baptized before other people. But I want you to understand that in the early church, it was a huge, it was a huge thing. As a matter of fact, a lot of people, even in the, in the early church, they were afraid to let their kids be baptized because once they are baptized, they're marked for life. See, when you were baptized in the Roman Empire, when you came out as a Christian in the Roman Empire, it was an unmistakable act that that person is a follower of Jesus. So in the first century, when believers took this step to identify themselves with the death and resurrection of Jesus and they declared their allegiance to Jesus, they were immediately marked for death. Remember I talked to you about uh, a few weeks ago about a guy named S who I met uh, in the Middle East and he told me this Arabic word. It may be a, a, a specific Arabic word but he, it's called mortad. Mortad. There's your Arabic word for today. Mortad. And literally mortad means someone who, can, who leaves Islam and becomes something else and mortad means that they're a dead man walking. 
So he told me, he says, when I became a believer, I took on more tithe. I am a dead man walking. I can't go back home. If I go back home, they'll kill me because I'm a follower of Jesus. See, if you're here today and you say you love Jesus, but you refuse to take that next step to publicly profess him through the waters of baptism, I'm really wondering whether you have a real relationship with him. Baptism is a declaration that a person's life, identity, and priorities are centered on Jesus and his mission. It's the first step. You know, I share this example with you many times, but baptism is like putting a wedding ring on. It, it marks you. So on, when I got married on June the 14th, 2008, and I made my commitment to my wife, April, and I said I do, and she said I do, and, and, and there we were, we sealed that relationship by the giving and receiving of rings. And when we put the ring on each other, when, when I put my, the ring on her and she put the, the ring on me, it was a symbol, a token of our love. It was also a symbol to the entire world that we are married, that we are committed to each other. So I wear a ring every day, everywhere I go, because number one, I want to keep all the good-looking ladies away from me. But number two, I want the entire world to know that April and I are in relationship, that April is mine and, and, and I am April's, and we are committed to each other. And when, when I wear this ring, it tells the entire world I'm a marked man. And for you, when you take that next step of baptism, you are saying to the world, I am a marked person, I'm a marked woman, I'm a marked man for Jesus Christ. See, that's a part of the discipleship thing. Jesus says, if you deny me before others, I'm going to deny you before my Father who is in heaven. So this morning, if you've never taken that next step, on that survey that you have, it says at the very bottom, I'd like to be baptized. And on September the 29th, we're going to be having a huge baptism day, and you should take that next step. Fill that out. Say, I'm ready to get baptized. I'm ready to take the next step. That's what it means to be a disciple, follower of Jesus. But then he said that we're to teach teach now some of you say well pastor this is where the problem is i can tell people about jesus i can i can see that they take the next step of baptism but i'm not a seminarian i'm not very smart i don't know the bible i don't know how to do it well let me just share with you that disciple making is simply doing the everyday stuff of your life with other people while walking towards jesus Step by step, day by day, meal by meal, conversation by conversation, you open your life, and in opening your life, you point other people to Jesus. That's all you do. You just walk with them, and you talk with them. It's not necessarily attending a class. It's not necessarily going through a program. It happens in and through relationships. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. You point each other to Jesus Christ. And here's what I found in disciple making. It's a journey. It's not a destination. If you're a parent in this room, you're a disciple maker. Did you know that? Your kids are going to follow you. They are your student. They are your follower. And they're going to follow you. And what you celebrate, they're going to emulate. What you value, they're going to do. What you find is important, they're going to find is important. You know, here's what I found about parenting. Now, I'm in the middle of it. Now, some of you that are veterans and scholars at parenting, praise the Lord for you. Go find someone like me and disciple us. But when you have a child, here's what I've learned. You don't just leave them to learn things by themselves. Now, some parents, what they do is they just give their kids a cell phone and say, figure it out. But that's not parenting. That's laziness. What you have to do with children, I know because I have three of them, that you have to teach them and you have to be patient with them. 
And there's going to come a day, oh glorious day, when that child is ready to be on their own. You know, a parent's job is to teach their kids to be less and less dependent on us and more and more dependent on God. But there's coming a day when the kid is ready to move out the house. Now here's what I know. When they move out the house, that doesn't mean the relationship ends. It just changes. And it continues with guidance and encouragement. But here's what I've learned. A parent's job is never really done. It just expands. So for those of you who are discipling somebody, you may go through a year-long process with them, but you don't just leave them. You just, it just expands. And those we lead to Christ, those we see baptized, those we teach will always be a part of our, li- our lives. We may not be with them every day. We may not be with them every week, but we guide them and we encourage them. I have a, a guy in our church that I've been discipling for a few months now. And I told him, hey, there's coming an end to where we're going to be meeting weekly. But when, I'm d- when, when we're done, you need to find someone else and disciple. It doesn't mean I'm just going to love you and leave you, but it means that you have to go out and do this on your own. That's what we're called to do. I don't know about you, but this excites me. What would happen if, all, if everyone in this room reached one person for Christ this year, saw them get baptized, and walked alongside of them, loving them, guiding them? What would happen to Sanford in this community for the glory of God? Now, some of you may be asking, because I know some of you may be asking this, do I need to be a member of a local church to do the Great Commission? Do I need to be a part of a body? And the answer is no, you don't have to be a part of a local church to do the Great Commission. But I will tell you this, that if you are not, you won't, if you're not a member of a local church, you won't be as effective and you won't be as fruitful. Because we have to understand, we live in a day, and I know some of you have been burnt by the church, you've been hurt by the church, you've been let down by preachers, and I'll tell you, this is a hard job, and I'm a sinner. Don't follow me, follow him. But the local church is a gift. It is a place to find strength, a place to find community, a place to find multi-generational discipleship. It is a platform to serve. It is an, an opportunity to use your spiritual gifts. It is a place for accountability. And there are many, many resources in being a part of a local church. Now, some people may say, well, I never, I've read the entire Bible. I've never seen church membership. Well, hear me. Church membership is not ex- explicit in the Bible. But it is implicit. You're a member of your body, right? You have a body, you have members in your body. Nobody has to tell your hand to be a part of your body, right? Because it's a part of your body. And when you read the Bible, the Bible talks all the time about being in covenant community. See, here's the thing about the, 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 the New Testament that we don't get in our modern day thing. Is that in Corinth, there was only one church. There wasn't 1,700 churches. It wasn't Baskin-Robbins when it came to the flavors of churches. In Corinth, you couldn't get mad at that church and then go to another church. You were stuck in that church till death do you part. But when you read the Bible, it talks about covenant community. It talks about local leadership. So how can you obey the command of respecting the elders and honoring your elder in the church if you're not under any kind of leader? Not under any kind of pastor. The Bible talks about discipline. Church discipline. That if someone's living in sin, that there should be someone that comes to them. And then the Bible says in Matthew 18 that if you have a problem with your brother, 
and that person doesn't listen to you, and then you bring other people, and they don't listen to them, you're to tell it to the church. Well, if you're not a member of a church, who are you going to tell it to? The Bible even talks about business meetings in the Bible. The Bible says in Hebrews that we are called not to forsake the assembly. So here's the thing. Yes, church membership is not explicit in the Bible, but it is implicit. The Bible does not say you have to be a member of a local church. The reason why is because it assumes it, that you are one. So here's a question. What does it mean to be a member of the church? What does it mean to be a member of our church? It means that you are committing and that you promise. It's a commitment and a promise. When you become a part of Central... You're saying, I am a member, I want to be a part of Central, I'm committed to these people, I'm committed to their doctrine, and I'm committed to the vision of these, these believers. That I'm committed to worship with them, to serve them, to love them, admonish them, encourage them, and to go out to the nations with them. Here's what I found. That there is a huge resistance today when it comes to commitment to anything. People don't want to commit to anything. Why do you think Redbox became so popular? You didn't have to have a Blockbuster membership. You didn't have to be a member of anything. The reason why people, even in this day when it comes to a lot of things, don't want to be committed is because people want the ability to jump ship without any repercussions. Because we live in a consumeristic mindset. That I'm coming and I want to be a part of this and I, I'm going to take and take and take, but, I'm not, but if I don't like what I get, I'm going to go somewhere else and find what I want. What I found that many people struggle with is they resist joining the church because they approach church with this mindset that, is, that, that I can get what I can get and I don't have to really belong because I don't really want to belong because I don't want any expectations put on me. I want to receive, but I don't really want to give. And I know some of you, maybe that you're regular attenders, you may not like this sermon. I get it. And some of you say, Pastor, I give money every week. Pastor, I even volunteer some. But the issue is, I'm not ready to be a member. And the thing is, the reason why is because ultimately you don't want to be all in. Let's be real. Now, next week, if we have nobody here, I'll just assume it's Labor Day weekend. <laughs> and it's a normal Sunday. You know, in Florida, they have these things called air plants. I took a picture of some. We have, we have these here. This is an air plant. There, there are other kind of air plants that are out there. You know what an air plant is? An air plant is not really a part of the tree, but they get the benefits of being in a tree. So they get the sunlight, they get the rain, they get the wind, and they're on the tree, but they don't really contribute anything to the tree. They're just kind of hanging there. Then you have mistletoe. Do you all know what mistletoe is? At Christmas time, everybody loves mistletoe. Mistletoe is not necessarily a part of the tree, but it uses the tree and eventually kills the tree. And there are some people, they call themselves believers, and they're either air plant Christians or they're mistletoe Christians. And they, they get the resources of the church, they, they use the resources of the church, but they don't contribute anything to the church, they're not really all in the church, and they just are there, and they're consumers, and if something they don't like happens, then they'll go and float to another tree. Or some are mistletoe, and they suck, 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 and they eventually kill the tree. And you say, Pastor, I don't like this part. Listen, I'm telling you this because I love you, not because I'm trying to get anything from you. Church membership is not a consumer relationship. Being a part of the church is a family. I know people have been burned by the church. I've been hurt by the church. 
I've been hurt by pastors. I've been hurt by church members. And let me just share with you, there are no perfect churches. And if you ever find a perfect church, Lord have mercy, don't join it. You'll ruin it. But if you find a church that you feel that God has brought you to, where there is biblical preaching, Christ-exalting vision, and a love for other people, then join it and be all in. And say, I'm going to be here. Sunday morning, I'm going to be here. I'm going to worship. I'm going to love these people. And yes, there are hypocrites in our church. There are hypocrites at Walmart. And you still go there. Just be all in. And if this, listen, I want to just, I want to be very candid this morning. I told you I had a burden this morning. If this is not where you feel like you can be all in, I get that. I want to help you find where you can be all in at. Because God doesn't want you to be an air plant Christian. God doesn't want you to be mistletoe. He wants you to be all in for the mission. For the mission. Third point, and it'll be quick. Thank God. The last one is this. The mission assured. How can we know the mission will be accomplished? What's the mission? To make disciples of all nations. If you read that, that's, a, that's an impossible task. All the nations. Pantate ethne. I told you last week that there are 17,064 people groups in the world. 7,143 are unreached, unengaged people groups. And yet, we are called to make disciples of all of them. The question is, these were 12 guys sitting here listening. And the question that you may have is, how can we be assured that we can even do this task? Three things. Number one, the power of Jesus. He says in verse 18, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Do you understand that Jesus has all authority? He has all exousia. He has all power. He is omnipotent. He can do anything he wants to do. If he wants to make a camel go through the eye of a needle, Dad Blabbit, that sucker's going through. The mission of Jesus, the mission that Jesus gives us, is based exclusively and entirely on his authority. The mission's imperative flows from this glorious indicative that all authority is given to Jesus. His authority empowers us to make disciples, and it assumes that it's going to happen. Making disciples is God's work. You ever heard that thing, you catch them, God cleans them? Well, it ain't even that. God catches them, God cleans them, He just uses you as a part of the process. It is a work that requires the power and authority of God. You cannot save anybody. We cannot make disciples on our own, in our own name, and in our own power. So that's why Jesus says do it in His. See, Jesus does not send the church out to conquer. He sends the church out in the name of the one who is already conquered. And it's in His name we go. The power of Jesus, the promise of Jesus. 
He says, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. It is a guarantee that makes everything possible. The promise makes sense because the work of the mission continues to the end of the age. We are a part of this. The power to fulfill the Great Commission is ultimately the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts and convinces people of their sins and their need for a Savior. He is the one who transforms them and makes them disciples of Jesus. Your job is just to help point others to Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through you and in and through them to make them more like Jesus. Now let me give you the last thing, and that's the parable of Jesus. You say, why did we read Mark 4.30? Because here's what the point of that parable was. Jesus says that, how am I going to compare the kingdom? The kingdom that you're to sell everything for. You remember that parable where I told you a few weeks ago that, that there was a guy who saw this treasure in a field and he sold everything that he had to buy the field so he could have the treasure. There was this guy who was searching for a pearl of great, of great value and he finds this pearl of great value. He sells everything he has to have the pearl. That's the kingdom. And then so Jesus says, well, how can I describe this kingdom? Let me just describe it to you. And here's what he's saying is that the kingdom of God starts out like the smallest seed, a mustard seed. In Jesus' day, it was the smallest known seed that was used by farmers. And Jesus says that that's what the kingdom of God is like. It may look microscopic in the beginning. But when it grows, it continues to grow and it will produce something that's completely out of proportion to itself. Here's what Jesus says is that it may look unimpressive. This church may look unimpressive. Reaching people for Jesus may seem to be very difficult. Being a part of the kingdom of God may seem hard. But the kingdom of God may start small, but it's going to grow large. And it's going to have a glorious end. One day, the King of Kings is going to return to usher in his kingdom. And what started with 12 ordinary nobodies ends with people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's going to happen. You can't stop it. All you can do is be a part of it. You can't stop it. You can't stop the kingdom of God coming any more than you can stop the sun from shining. But it's coming. So the question is, are you all in? Are you going to be a part of the mission or are you just going to be content to sit on the sidelines? See, the vision of this church is to multiply to reproduce disciples and to reproduce churches. It's not just adding people in the seats. It is sending people out into the nations. I, I, my prayer for our church is that we are not known by our seating capacity, but we are known by our sending capacity. And therefore, every dollar that we give, everything that we do, all the efforts that we put are all about reaching others for Jesus Christ. So church, we cannot be content to be on the sidelines. We need to be all in the game until he returns. Mike and I have the opportunity of being on the, on the sidelines at Seminole High School football games. And, and it's amazing. I used to play football. And it's amazing watching guys on the sidelines. 
some of those guys are content to just be on the sideline. They don't really want to go in the game. They want the gear on. They want the makeup on. They want all the cheerleaders thinking that they are studs. But they don't want to go in that game. And then you have some on the sidelines, and they are chomping at the bits. They want to get out there. They want to be on the field. They cannot wait to run the play. They cannot wait. Which one are you? Are you content to just sit on your little lily pad until you croak? Or are you going to give your all to Jesus?